suspected that something was very wrong and that it was abusive. Victims try their darndest to uh, keep everything inside. I strongly suspected that, that it was an abusive relationship. I still can't get to a point where I could look at her pictures. There was something about him didn't know what it was. That controlling, abusive person that they are with their victim. I kept blaming myself, saying I should have done this, I should have done that. Another big red flag for me was a change in Lindsay's behavior, a change in her personality. I firmly believe if Kristen and Lindsay had learned about all of these facts when they were in high school, that they would still be with us today. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. In July 2005, Anne, a retired health teacher now in Rhode Island, worked with legislators to pass a bill called the Lindsay Ann Burke Act. We will talk about that and much more today on this When Dating Hurts podcast. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and it's good to speak with you again. I know. You and I go back to way back in time. I think we go back to June of 2009 when we came together. We did some love is not abuse work, and we walked the halls of Congress there for a while, and we have some history, good history. Thank you. Well, we did, and we, we did, we, and we also accomplished quite a bit too back then, working together back then. Yes. So I think that, um, I think that was important at the time. Definitely is. And, and many, many people may, may not, I'm sure, may not realize what was going on back then, but being able to be involved in that work, maybe we can talk about it a little bit later, made a difference. Yes, we'll definitely touch on that. Thank you. So, Anne, would you please take us back to 2005 before Lindsay Ann had been attacked? What was going on in her life at that time? Was she she in school or was she out and working? What was she doing? At the time that she was killed, she had just graduated from college. And she had been in a two-year relationship with this guy and at some point during that time we suspected that something was very wrong and that was abusive and later learned that it was so it had been her last two years of college and quite frankly um thinking back on that especially her senior year i'm amazed that she was able to keep everything together at the time, finish college, and not let on what was really going on in that relationship. So later, um, as I learned more about dating violence, I came to understand that that's not unique, that oftentimes victims try their darndest to uh, keep everything inside, to not let yes, do. those around her know what's happening and be, sometimes become uh, quite good at, at I don't, quotations, acting when she was in front of other people or dealing with the control that was happening in her life at the time. So she had gra- just graduated from college back in, back in 2005. You and your husband did not have an awareness about what was going on in her life with this guy, but but did her friends, did, did they know, or was this like shielded from everybody? Well, this was interesting because actually, we didn't know, myself and my husband, we didn't know everything that was going on. But especially myself, I strongly suspected that... Um, 
that it was an abusive relationship. And on several occasions, I do remember even speaking to her about it and trying to do everything I could think of to keep her close to us and sort of combat that isolation that he had set up and try to get her to understand what was happening and offering support to her right through to the end. After she passed away, we spoke with her friends and interestingly enough, she didn't open up to her friends, but her friends had the same suspicions that we did because of the observations that they were making over the course of those two years. And they told me that they spoke to her as well about what they were seeing and tried to convince her that it wasn't healthy, that she needed to break, break it off, to leave him. That was very reassuring to me at the time be, after she was murdered because at least I know that we were all trying in our own way to support her and to get her to move out of that relationship. And she did leave. I mean, she broke the relationship off several times prior, but she kept going back because he was so relentless in his nonstop phone calls and saying and doing everything he possibly could to keep her in that relationship with him. So we both, we and her friends, felt like we were fighting a battle and towards the end were realizing that we weren't on the winning side of that battle, no matter what we were trying. And that was very difficult for all of us, her friends included. It, it, was, it was devastating for her friends. I myself try not to go back and think about it very often because it's just so painful. Uh, every time I have more time, like during this pandemic over the past year, when you're home a lot and your mind just goes back to what happened, I start to get sick to my stomach, all those feelings that were present at the beginning after learning of her loss start rising up inside of you and it becomes so intolerable that I just have to stop. I have to stop myself from thinking. I, under, I know mm -hmm. that we're all different in the way that we handle the loss of our child under these circumstances. And some people find it comforting to think of their children, to look at pictures, um, to think back of fond memories. I have the opposite response. I have to just shut it all off because I go to a very dark, dark place if I allow myself to remember the good times. It's been 15 years and I still can't get to a point where I could look at her pictures outside of the ones that are in in the house hanging on the walls or on on furniture those i haven't touched but as far as picking up photo albums that's why when i was reading your book and i noticed the pictures of Kristen and your family i asked myself that must have been difficult i wonder if it was difficult for bill to be able to go back and search for just the right pictures to to put in that book and a lot of little things like that that people don't realize you know thought yeah those things you're talking about i mean well your your reality you know your handling of these nearly 16 years and my wife's handling is identical i mean it's like i'm listening to her right now so yes the idea of picking up a photo album and sitting on the couch paging through it forget it not happening. I thought we might be there by now. We have various family videos that we shot right from right from her birth. And I've looked at bits and pieces that usually, as you can imagine, drives me to tears. Michelle won't go near that. She would not, if she knew that was playing, she would stop and not come in the room. And I don't know. I don't know if that really will ever change. I mean, we're you know, we're halfway through the second decade, and I don't, I don't see, I don't see uh, that in changing. Something like writing the book, 
it was very important for a whole lot of reasons for Michelle to read the book before it was published. Part of it is just accuracy, part of what she was comfortable putting out in the public. But it was tough. I mean, she took a lot of time getting through a lot of the book and some parts really slow. I don't blame her at all. You know, we all grieve differently, but honestly, whatever people pick as their path for grieving, I look at it as with utmost respect. That is up to you. You're on your own clock. You know, some people can move through things like this and somehow look at what we had and feel good about it as opposed to what we lost and feel horrible about it. Did you have, I mean, she, Lindsay Ann dated this guy for a couple of years. So you were around him, I'm sure, a fair amount. Not a lot. Did you have? We we weren't, we we saw him, um, I want to say maybe a handful of times. And that should be telling in and of itself. Right, Um, sure it is. From the very beginning, she would tell us about him. And everything on the surface seemed okay. He had a good job. He was a responsible father. He had been married before. It all sounded okay. When we met him, I I didn't have any feelings one way or the other. But my interestingly enough, my husband, after the first meeting, told me that he felt something was off. There was something about him that he didn't quite like, but he didn't know what it was. We wow. we saw him a few more times, and I started looking at him the way my husband had, and I started to question a lot of things. Um, I remember one time in particular, in fact, it was her graduation party after, after college. It was a small party, just our family, and he didn't mingle with the family. He stayed out mm. to the side with Lindsay, holding her hand, looking into her eyes for the longest period of time. I would go over and try to interrupt to get Lindsay to come and spend more time with the family. And she just seemed absolutely mesmerized by him. It was hard to get her to come and act herself and be normal with everybody. By the end of that evening, I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong because none of that was normal behavior. I think over the course of those two years, after the first few times of meeting us, I think he intentionally didn't want to spend time with us. In fact, I saw him... Well, he he probably didn't want you to figure him out. Maybe, maybe so. He probably figured you would figure him out eventually. Mm -hmm. You'd see through it. Yeah. The interesting thing is that afterwards, I I learned that they tend to have two sides to them, that one, in quotations, good side or better side that they use in front of their family, their victim's family, sometimes their friends or their co-workers, and then there's the real person, that controlling, abusive person that they are with their victim. And after learning that and thinking back, I realized, oh my gosh, this was all classic behavior that was going on. And he tried his hardest to set up isolation between her and us, and even between her and her friends. He would really badmouth the friends, badmouth us to her. And it was constant. It was over and over and over again. He would set up all sorts of obstacles to her seeing her friends or her going out with friends or family. Yeah, that's the way it works. It was yes. Um, yes. It was awful. Exactly. It, it was absolutely awful. The possessiveness, the jealousy. Yeah. How did you learn that he was doing that about you? That he was bad mouthing you and other people? Did you just find? Is that one another thing you found out after the fact? I did. Some of it. Some of it I found out after the fact. Um, I I believe at some point she told me, not real specifically, I had to like read between the lines that he really didn't like us. And I, I don't, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know the exact time of that, but I remember 
when she first passed away of having so many questions about what happened, how could this have happened? What was really going on in that relationship? What didn't we know about? So that was very frustrating. But I just remember searching and searching for the truth afterwards. And I never did learn all of the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone ever does. But I suspected an awful lot. That's the frustrating part, you know, that you just don't know exactly everything that was going on. But I don't know. It took me a long time also to reach a point where I didn't blame myself because I kept blaming myself, saying I should have done this. I should have done that. There was more that I could have done. And it wasn't until years later when I looked back and I started to realize there was an awful lot that I said and a lot of support that I offered. but she just didn't take advantage of it. So there's only so much that you can do. There's only so much that family can do. There's only so much that friends can do. Yeah, it's it's a normal thing to to go back and look at every step you took, everything you said. And I know Kristen's friends were the same way. You know, they looked at it like, we we knew we didn't like this guy. We thought he was strange that he kept trying to separate Kristen from us. That's why it's so important to teach the warning signs, because once you have a sense of of what the warning signs are about, which has to do with power and control and all the different techniques, but once you have a sense of what that's about, then when you're introduced to somebody one way or another and you see things happening, you can say, oh, wow, this sounds like one of those relationships. This could go to a really bad place. We have to figure out ways to intervene. We need to get information to this person. You know, we need to show how this picture is getting painted here. Instead, your situation, our situation, your daughter's friends, my daughter's friends, they're in a situation where they see things happening, but they don't know where it could go. They just know they don't like it or they feel like, wow, we used to be able to hang out with Kristen and now she's completely unavailable Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And or we don't like him, and it's for these various reasons, or he acts oddly, but no one thinks murder is coming. Right. You know, right. That's and I don't know what it was like for you with Kristen, but one thing I do remember is another big red flag for me was a change in Lindsay's behavior, a change in her personality. Having Yes, that's one too. Yeah, that's a warning sign. Having gone from a very outgoing, bubbly personality to one that was so much more withdrawn and sullen Mm -hmm. acting depressed acting depressed and and still like you just described because she's under fire absolutely and still as you described not knowing which brings us back to what you said and that is the power of education if our teens are learning this in school then they know what to look for. If parents educate themselves and learn the warning signs, they know what to look for. Should your child or your child's friend become involved in a situation like this, you're not wasting valuable time trying to figure out what the heck am I seeing? What the heck is going on? You know what's going on and you could skip that stage and go right to what can I do about it? What can I do to help? And I also think from the victim's perspective, if they know the warning signs, they may still resist believing what friends and family are saying to them. However, somewhere in the back of their mind, they've already heard about it, they've learned about it, and they know you're not making it up. So then it just becomes a matter of time for them to make those connections and hopefully leave safely, which is the next step, having, you know, making sure that you're leaving safely. I know here in Rhode Island, we also teach about leaving safely, not just what can friends and family do to help, but how should a victim uh, leave in a safe manner and why? Because we know that the, the likelihood of, um, being murdered increases after the breakup of a relationship, um, after the breakup of an abusive relationship. And so 
that brings us to the fact that the victim needs to have a safety plan. They need to leave safely and not to leave until they have a safety plan and have thought all of that out, which I know in Rhode Island, I know the education works because over the last 13 years that it's been taught in the schools and I've had a lot of a lot of time talking to the teachers and guidance counselors in the various schools that I've gone to to train staff. They have told me stories of students that have been in these relationships, what they have done as school personnel to alert the family, to bring in the resource officer and along with the victim, sit them down, work out a safety plan, and then follow through with all of that. And also keep track of, of the student, offer, continue to offer the support in time so that the student is not all alone trying to deal with their response to the abuse and thinking that nobody cares, there's nothing they can do. I just think the educational piece is crucial. And I, I firmly believe if Kristen and Lindsay had learned about all of these facts when they were in high school, that they would still be with us today. I, yeah, I have no doubt about that. No yeah. doubt in my mind, I think of that. That haunts me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It haunts me too sometimes. But we can't go back in time. And so we have to just look forward and continue to do what we think is the right thing to do so that others don't have to suffer. Other families and victims don't have to suffer like our daughters did and like we do. There's nothing that we can do to turn back the clock, even though I've thought about things like that or you know, prayed for things like that, really actually prayed. But no, that's not going to be. But, you know, maybe if we can help describe what the avalanche looks like so that when others start to hear things happening and cracking, they'll know this is the time to make plans and get out safely. And so you actually work together in your state with legislators and had a law passed. Tell us about what you did with that. Going back to uh, 2005, 2006, that was a time when I really delved into uh, a lot of research on the topic itself. So I made sure that I was well-educated on the topic before I thought about what to do next. And once I made the decision that we needed to give our teenagers this same education, life-saving education, that we needed to do it in a way that was consistent. It would be done every single year, that schools couldn't make a choice whether to teach it or not. Um, so we, I decided, you know what they needed? So it's mandated. It, yeah, yeah, it had to be mandated. Other, otherwise, um, it would have been watered down. They, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. They'd say or they were so busy teaching everything else. Exactly. Yeah. Or they just wouldn't do it. So I looked at the laws here in Rhode Island, and we did have some strong laws as far as bullying education goes, sexual harassment education. And so I thought, okay, that lays the foundation then for dating violence education. I took a look at the law that Texas had at the time. They were the only state at the time who had a dating violence education law, but it was quite frankly, it was very weak. Then I looked at the state of Massachusetts. Their Department of Education had a pol dating violence policy. It wasn't mandated, but they, they strongly recommended that it be taught. So I looked at that, put everything together, came up with the what I thought should be in the law. I went first to our Department of Education that was a fairly easy step for me because they knew I was a health teacher at the time. So I think that that gave me a little bit of credibility with them. I convinced them it was the right thing to do, asked them if they would support such a law. They said yes. I went over to our Department of Health, did the same with them. They said yes, they would support it. Went to our teachers' unions, got them on board. They said they would support it. Last thing I did was went to our Attorney General who I had already met at that time, having gone through through uh, the murder case with Lindsay. Rhode Island is a small state, so we have one attorney general for the entire state. And being such a, um, I don't want to say high profile, but it was a very important case. So he became involved in it. 
And he said to me, how committed are you? Because it's going to take probably about three years to get this passed. And I looked at him and I said, I'm very committed. I said, I'm not giving up until this is done. And I had also reassured. That's great. Yeah, I reassured him and I reassured the Department of Education that Lindsay's Fund would offer to train all of our school staff for free and provide curriculum for free. So, of course, they thought that was terrific and that was a bonus for everybody. So we didn't have to put attach money to the bill. So we went through. The attorney general agreed to sponsor it. And he was, as most attorney, state attorney generals are, they're pretty skilled in getting legislation passed. He knew just what the right timing was. And it passed the first time out. So we were fortunate that that happened. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it is. Looking back, it is. It is. Absolutely. It is amazing. amazing, actually, looking back at it. Yeah. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. The Lindsay Ann Burke Law requires Number one, each school district to develop a dating violence policy to address incidents of dating violence that occur at school and inform parents of such policy. Two, each school district to provide dating violence training to administrators, teachers, nurses, and mental health staff at the middle and high school levels. Number three, each school district to teach an age-appropriate dating violence curriculum through health education classes every year in grades 7 through 12. Four, dating violence awareness trainings for parents are strongly recommended. Number five, verification of compliance with the Rhode Island Department of Education on an annual basis through the annual school health report. That is the Lindsay Ann Burke Law. And every one of those are great. And you know, it's interesting too, Number four, dating violence awareness through trainings for parents are strongly recommended. That's really important. And it's interesting to me how many parents that we've run into over the last 15 years since Kristen was killed, who oftentimes look at us like, why are you telling me about this? This doesn't really apply to us. You know, this, we don't live in one of those neighborhoods. This doesn't happen around here. And it's through their denial of that. You know, the fact that they push back on that, that's what makes it so dangerous, especially as we've talked about, that the prevalence is equal everywhere. But to say, well, whoa, 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 we don't need to talk about this. We don't need to sit around, do classes and look at PowerPoints because it just doesn't apply. It's just that happens somewhere else. You know, we don't live like that. We don't, our family isn't involved in that. No, our friends are not involved in that. And that just lets them put their guard down and makes them much more susceptible to actually have it walk right in. For one thing, they don't think it happens. Besides that, they don't know if it's happening anyway because they don't know the warning signs. Very dangerous thinking. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on that one. I was working full-time teaching, and as soon as my day ended, I would be off to various middle schools and high schools to train their entire faculty. And I did that for the five years that I continued to work, teach full time after Lindsay's death. And then once I retired, I continued to do that. And now we've gotten to a point where the middle schools and high schools have all been trained. And now we give a yearly training for those teachers who are newly hired never taught it before, reassigned. Now they have to teach health class. We just continue our work doing that and sponsoring other projects, um, awareness projects in the schools. We did donate research-based curriculum 
to all of our middle and high schools, so they all have the tools to do it. They have the education to do it. And it's amazing what some of the schools have really taken it on and have sort of, you know, flown with it. It's very heartwarming when you see that happening, when they start to take it on. Prior to the passage of this law, our public schools, if you were lucky, had an outside domestic violence agent, say, come in to teach maybe three classes, three lessons on the topic. It wasn't being done in any of our private schools. Yeah, barely anything. Barely anything. Yeah, barely and if anything. you were absent, you didn't, you missed the information. Lindsay transferred schools. Right, right. And went the life-saving off. information. Yeah, so she missed it once she transferred schools. Now it's it's drilled into their heads for the most part. And that's a good thing because you want them to be able to remember it. You know, as I, as I would tell the teachers, you're teaching life skills. They may or may not be in an abusive relationship right now. They may not know, have a friend or a family member in an abusive relationship by now, but it may happen to them in college when the rate of dating violence goes up. It may happen to them when they're in middle age in a relationship. So you're really teaching them lifelong skills um, and you're giving them the tools to be able to help themselves. I would have teachers come up and talk to me afterwards who had been victims in violent relationships and thank me for what I was doing. I remember specifically one teacher coming up to me, thanking me for the training because she was in the middle of getting a divorce and her husband kept trying to tell her that it was all her fault continually telling her, putting mm-hmm. her down, mm-hmm. telling That's her everything was her classic fault. stuff, classic. And she looked at me and she said, after having heard all of this, I realize it's not my fault. I had another male teacher come up to me at another time, thanking me for the piece that I teach on victimization. What happens to victims psychologically in the relationship? And why is it that they have such difficulty leaving the relationship? He thanked me with tears in his eyes and then told me that he grew up in an abusive family. His father abused his mother. He said he could never understand why the mother didn't leave and he held it against her. And he said, now I look at it differently and I understand and I don't blame my mother. Breakthrough. There's just so much power, oh, so much power in, in the education. I was also doing a few student assemblies, and I remember one young man following me outside of the school, wanting to tell me his story about his sister and wanting to know what could he do to help his older sister who was in an abusive relationship. So when you're in those relationships, or you know someone who was in one, this information is vital to you. It's life-changing to you. It's what you are seeking and it empowers you. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. You're saying life skills. You're saying all the right things. It has huge impact on people. But as long as, as long as this is not communicated to people at any age, really, but at least get to them when they're finishing middle school and heading into high school and definitely college and beyond. Absolutely. To hold back that information, to act like, well, you know, I mean, we've had people in our area where we live that we've talked with who just kind of don't think it's necessary because things like domestic violence don't happen around areas like this. Mm-hmm. They don't think it applies. They don't realize that there's plenty of research that'll show them. It's just as prevalent here as it is in inner cities and depressed areas and whatever that is, you know, all these kind of cliched, stereotypical places Ab- that it's absolutely equally as prevalent everywhere. And it's a leap of faith that that's the truth. It is the truth, but it takes a leap of faith for people to accept that. Yeah, it absolutely is the truth. And and it goes beyond where you live. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter whether you have a job or you're unemployed. It doesn't matter whether you live in a big house or you're homeless. It doesn't, none of that matters. The skin, the color of your skin doesn't matter. It could happen to anyone. And I think if you're able to get that across to everybody from the very beginning, then hopefully as you continue to educate them, that they start to realize that that's correct. And the other thing I want to mention too, that other point that I think is important is 
male victims. Oftentimes people think, oh, you know, males are strong. How could a male be a victim? But yet 10% of the time, the victim is a male. I've had the occasion to meet several male victims. A couple were police officers. Another one was a college student. And when they explain what they've been through and you see the tears coming down their face and you see the emotion on their face, you understand it's no different than what a female victim goes through. And in some ways, it's sadder because they have even more, they have a harder time asking someone for help or letting someone know what's happening with them because of the whole stereotype. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, imagine how embarrassing it would be to say that your wife abuses you, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe physically, but obviously emotionally. Yeah. And and most people would look at that like, well, why do you put up with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's for all the reasons that women put up with men. And it's it's the same thing. It's no different. Absolutely. But you're right. There's there's even a greater stigma, greater embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons. And that brings us back to what you and I and several other parents had worked on through our work with the Love is Not Abuse Coalition. And when we went down to Washington, and if I'm not mistaken, one of the times that we went down to Washington was the last passage of the Violence Against Women's Act. And as a result of our work, they had put language for the first time in that law about dating violence. Prior to that, it was all domestic violence, domestic violence, but they changed the language. That was one good thing that we got done. I don't know if you recall when we when we met with several other parents in Vice President Biden's office, that was the time that, yes, yes that was, remember? Uh... That was in twenty early 2013. Yes. Yes, of course. We, Absolutely. We, we have the pictures. Yeah. We have the pictures. We sent him a letter. Prior to that, we sent him a letter that we all signed requesting that he send a letter to all of the departments, the state department of education in all 50 states, letting them know about dating violence, that it was such an important topic and that it needed to be dealt with in schools, that it, the education needed to take place and policies need to be written. He did come through. They did compose a letter. The U.S. Department of Education composed a letter to the state commissioners of education, and that was sent. So that's another big thing that we worked on together. So I I thought that was pretty powerful, though, having all of us parents come together and speak out. And truthfully, it was after that. If you recall. So great to be involved. Yeah. At some point after that is when the media started to talk about it a lot. After that, things started to turn around and change. As more and more parents, I think, in various states started speaking up, going public about it, parents who lost their, their, their daughters. And actually, there was a parent who lost their son in New York. The son was killed by the abusive girlfriend. But I think as more and more parents spoke up about it, things started to change. It became more acceptable for everyone. And in the media, they started to talk about it much more. And then that led to all of the decisions in the various athletic leagues, the football, basketball, yes. baseball, yes, um, changing their laws, writing, writing policies regarding domestic violence. And so a lot of good has come. But all the Me Too movement. Yeah. Right. Me Too, a lot of these things, you know, they came out and uh, kind of in the 2015 time period, my recollection is, plus especially 2015, you started to see that. And, you know, a lot of a lot of celebrities, you know, it seems like they became much more public with what was going on. You know, it seemed to be easier for them to get out and tell the story. You know, one of the things that I've tried to reinforce is that you hear about athletes having this happen, you know, some guy playing football or baseball and he uh, injures his girlfriend or his wife. And I think sometimes people write that off saying, well, you know, they're these crazy people that have all this money and they do all kinds of stuff. And But it's like, no, you know, once again, that falls into a, a trap. And as much as it's depressed areas, they think, well, people with a lot of money just go crazy and do whatever they want. The fact is, it's just very prevalent. Bottom line, very prevalent. And so... You know, the, the only statistic that I use is that one in three women 
will suffer serious physical violence sometime in their lifetime at the hands of an intimate partner, and that it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24. And the emotional abuse is about twice that. So when you think of roughly 70% of women will suffer emotional abuse, now with that as the backdrop of prevalence, you can see again why training about this, educating, communicating, bringing awareness, anything you can do to take young people and say, look, this is a fact of life. This is a reality. And it's better for you to know this. So when it comes along, you can cut off that relationship in its beginning. Because you can see when it goes, you know, when it's a relationship, months and years pass, expectations happen. You know, the, the abusive person gets a stronger grip. Maybe these people get married. Maybe these people have kids. He makes her eventually, depending on the way it works in the relationship, more financially dependent, all kinds of, uh, you know, the nasty tricks people who do this pull on the other people. You get in so deep that getting out is virtually impossible and getting out is so dangerous. So yes, if you can nip it in the bud, if people will believe this is prevalent, people will not only learn about it, but teach about it. That's, that's really the sweet spot. I mean, that's, that's it. That's why you have done so many things. And, you know, I, I've tried to do as much as I could do too. You know, so many people mm-hmm. like us mm-hmm. have, have taken our pain and suffering and, and used it as fuel, you know? Right. Absolutely. I do have a curiosity Anne, about this yeah. person who did this to your daughter, but at this particular mm-hmm. time now, he is serving a life sentence. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's life without parole. Here in Rhode Island, we don't have a death penalty. I was told by the attorney general that if we had the death penalty, this case would have been eligible. But the strongest penalty that we have is life without parole. Even though someone has life without parole, the chances of them getting out of prison are really slim to none. But according to the law, they can appeal and appeal, and the appeals are basically never-ending. They just have the right to do that. So has he been doing this all along, appealing? He did. He did several times. For the first, oh, I want to say maybe um, eight, nine years or so, I might have even been up to 10 years, we would go every time that there was a hearing. We felt that we needed to be there for Lindsay, representing her, and so we would go despite the emotional turmoil that it would put us through. And then finally, several years back, five or six years ago, I finally reached my limit with one particularly serious appeal where we had to be in court for three days. I broke down when I met with the prosecutor after that, and I said, you know what, I can't keep putting myself through this. I feel as though I have struggled to survive all these years. It's been about survival. Every time I have to go back into court and see him, this really sets me back tremendously. I said, I know I did it freely for so many years. I said, but I think I've reached a point inside of me where I feel I no longer have to be present. Please don't let me know about any more appeals unless you feel we have to be there. The judge would like us to be there. Like it's imp- our presence would be important as far as the judge is concerned. I said, then by all means, call us. We'll be there in a heartbeat. I said, but otherwise, I need to stop thinking about this and I need to stop thinking about him and just put that out of my mind so that I can salvage what's left of my mind, my, my life, and, and be there in a better way for my family. So it's, you know, it's unfortunate. We never expected that. And I know every case is different and some parents have it even more difficult due to plea deals and everything else that, and even a life sentence is not just a life sentence. You could always get parole and that whole thing. It just seems like it's unfair, unfair to to the family that's left behind. They say this is the best legal system in the world. But sometimes I wonder if there couldn't be improvement even upon the But when you consider the value of a life, the fact that that it is the one of all the things that could be stolen from any of us, that's the one Mm -hmm. thing no one can give back. That's the biggest thing. It's not coming back. 
and the fact that someone took it, then the rules change, in my opinion, and they don't change again. So yes, if you are sent away for life, that's it. Let's not be marching into courtrooms and trying to see if there's another angle, another way to weasel this person out of there. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, exactly. I mean, I look at it like these people are perfectly capable if they're out to go ahead and just kill somebody else. They could do it in the first month. No problem. Without it, without a doubt. In fact, I said that to the prosecutor at one point. I said because she I think she was more worried than I was. I think they just get so involved in the law and they see maybe people getting off on technical questions and things like that, that they they become, you know, um, a little leery. Mm-hmm. of what might happen. And I just got to a point where I said to her, I said, really, stop and think about it. What judge in his right mind is going to let him walk the streets again? Because we all know he's going to go and do it to somebody else. Oh, he'll do something. He'll and, ruin a life you know? somehow. Yeah. I, I, you well. know, I, I, so I, I got to the point where I felt, you know, he, he wasn't going to have that kind of power over me. Maybe he's got power over the legal system because the legal system gives him that power of appeal. That doesn't yes. mean that it has to control me and I have to keep going back. You know, it's it's frustrating and I feel sorry for anybody, even victims who survive, who, who've been beaten and terribly abused and, and survive. I feel very badly for them because they have to deal with that. And if they have children, then that just complicates the whole system for them. Well, you know, it's one thing you have to feel good about is is the legacy that you and your family have established really forever. Poor Lindsay. I mean, it's it's remarkable. You know, when somebody is killed, that's a statistic. When somebody is saved, there is no statistic. You'll never know how much good. You don't have any idea, nor do I, how many people whose lives could have been ruined were not ruined. People who got tipped off early because of something that you helped push, some information you pushed, that they thought, wow, this sounds just like what I heard in that class last year. I got to steer away from this guy, or I need to steer my friend away or coach my friend in a whole different way. So that's a legacy. I mean, that's just an incredible thing. And I, you have to feel so good about that. And not that you necessarily set out to do that. I think you were probably driven by just your motivation to do something positive after having something so horrible come crashing through your life. And I, I understand that feeling completely. You know, you, you can't pick up all the pieces, but can you pick up some of the pieces and, and do something with them? So that's, that's right. great. I mean, to have a law passed that does so much right there. I mean, that's, that's just great. So. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. It, it does, it does bring me some measure of, of comfort and, and you're right. My motivation was wanting others to have the education that Lindsay didn't have so that they didn't have to find themselves in the same situation. And I, at the time I had never spoken in front of large groups. In fact, I would shy away from things like that. And I remember saying, I I remember saying once to my principal before I was heading off to another school for training, I I would just look at her and I'd say, I don't know why I'm doing this. I, I'm just, I feel compelled. I've never felt like this in my entire life. I just feel absolutely compelled to do this. That's how much I believed in it and still believe in it. And you're right. We can't bring back our daughters. We can only try to do what we can to help others. And if it leaves a legacy as a byproduct, that's, that's good. That's fine. It certainly wasn't my intention in the first place, but I'm comforted by the fact that that we were able to at least accomplish the law and let that be a model for other states. Yeah, it's absolutely a great model, and I wish they all followed it. In fact, out of the 22 states that have passed various laws, about eight of them are quite strong, like Lindsay's law. Now, eight out of 22, that's not even half. What it, what it taught me is that a lot of what happens within the states and even on a national level is very political. Not political in terms of parties, political in terms of groups and agencies and who is afraid of perhaps losing funding or losing their status or work because of something that's totally new that they see as a threat. 
what it comes down to is agencies are no different than people. We're afraid of change. I think in every state that didn't pass the full uh, original law, they didn't turn it around. The agencies didn't turn it around and look at it as an opportunity. They saw it as a threat. And that's unfortunate because seeing it as a threat goes against their very mission of trying to reduce or eliminate dating and domestic violence. Yeah, in Maryland, what happened was that they looked at it like the people who stood up against it looked at it like we don't want a bunch of politicians in Annapolis telling us what to teach in school. So even though it's life-saving information, we don't want anybody in Annapolis telling us what to teach in school because we know what we should teach in school. So Right. They would just kind of right. lean on that the politicians to vote it down and or redact it to death. In fact, I think if I if I didn't get the support of our Department of Education ahead of time, I think that that might have very well happened here in Rhode Island. So I I was thankful that they supported it from the very beginning, because I think otherwise it, probably we would have gotten in trouble with it as well. Well, I think the fact that you kind of went from place to place selling it in that you kind of headed off. I think a lot of the problems you may have had if you just tried to just walk in with right. it, hoping everybody was going to nod and say, yeah, let's do that. Right. We took, I, I think we so. took three runs at it and we failed three times and then mm -hmm. years passed. And then somebody asked if we wanted to do it again. And I said, you know, at this point in my life, I want to do it the grassroots way. You know, I'll go from school to school and I'll mm -hmm. do a presentation if they'll let me in. I'll never say no. And then eventually wrote the book figuring, well, a book can go anywhere. And if I can tell people about the book, someone buys the book, they read the book, hopefully they pass the book to somebody else. So one book can go to a lot of different people. It's mm -hmm. not the same as having a law passed, but I didn't see a law getting passed anytime soon. I give you a tremendous amount of credit for being able to sit down and write such a well, well-written Truly, you're a gifted writer. Well-written book that will help so many in the years to come. I think that you included everything in there from your personal experiences and giving us a good idea as to who Kristen was. So in that regards, it's a tribute to her. Also, giving us an idea as to what you and your family went through from the time that she lost her life. Having been there, I know how emotionally difficult, let's describe it as turmoil, emotional yeah, turmoil that, that you're going, yep, that you're going through for quite a few years. And so to be able to put all that in writing and really capture quite a bit of the essence of that emotional turmoil, I think is a talent to be able to do that, but also a gift to to the audience. I honestly don't know how you did it emotionally, because I'm sure every time you sat down to think about it and write again, it must have brought you back to square one, put everything right out in the open again. I know what that's like, ha having done numerous trainings and interviews over the years and speaking with victims. It just brings everything right up to the forefront again. It's with you for days afterwards. So writing that book must have been a very emotional experience for you. For that, I give you an awful lot of credit to oh, be able you. to do that. I think, you know, and for it to end up being a tribute, like I said, to and a legacy for Kristen and also a gift to everyone else who can learn from it, hopefully, whether it's, whether it's younger persons or older persons, whether it's victims or parents, there's just so much to learn. But also for those of us parents who've gone through what you've been through, it's reaffirming. Oftentimes when you're going through that experience, you know, you haven't had any prior experience with that. There is no manual that tells you how to go through that and manage your life and your feelings and everything else. And oftentimes you think you're going crazy or it's you. And so to be able to read that, especially for a lot of parents who perhaps haven't, who maybe haven't reflected much on it or had a hard time dealing with all of that, 
I think it is reaffirming and it reaffirms to them that what they were experiencing was quote unquote normal Mm -hmm. under the circumstances. And that means a lot. I mean, that goes a long way in your emotional healing. So I think that there's a lot of good that's going to come from the book. I give you a lot of credit for, for sitting down over the course of time and putting all of that into words. I I just wanted you to know that. That's wonderful to hear that. We recently had a board meeting for Lindsay's Fund. I've been telling them for the past few years that at some point I'm going to step back. And so one of the members, he suggested that I write a book. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, "I, I think you need to write a book so that people will know who Lindsay was and it would be Lindsay's legacy. And I said, funny you should mention that. I said, because I just finished reading a book and I told them about your book and I gave them your name and the title of the book and they jotted it down. So I'm sure that they'll be, they'll be reading it. About a year or so after Lindsay passed away, I was still teaching, I was still working and I felt like I was feeling somewhat lost, but trying to figure out after I had done a lot of research about about dating violence and and recognizing that it was a uh, major problem that was not being addressed to any anyone's benefit in the educational system and that students teenagers in particular needed to learn about the topic I was kind of torn because part of me said I should write a book another part of me said maybe you need to go pursue the educational Mm. piece Finally, what I sat back and I thought about what I tried to figure out what would Lindsay say to me if she were here? Mm. What what input would she have? Smart. Yeah. And and knowing, yep, knowing that she got her uh, degree in education, I thought, well, I think that she would want me to go through the education route. And that was really what determined my path from there on. And quite frankly, I think uh, your book was a wonderful welcome. Because it kind of got me off the hook from having to do anything with that. I felt I felt like I did what I what I was I did what I, I used not only what I thought Lindsay would want us to do, but also what did I think I was capable of doing? You know what what meshed with my job, my skills, my knowledge, and and let that sort That's of guide smart. me. Very smart. I just think it's a terrific book. Thank you. So, Anne, if you were to put up a big billboard to advise parents, young women, students, and teachers about dating violence in big, bold letters, what might it say? It would say, educate yourself about dating violence. Know the facts to help yourself, your friends, and your family. And then go to whatever website we wanted to put up there. Or read Bill's book, When Dating Hurts, by Bill Mitchell, a book every parent needs to read. I, I, think, I think they need to educate themselves. And, they, and the only way to do that is go to a website, either read a book, but most of them may not do that, but know the warning signs and how to help yourself. Without and honestly, you know, my, my book is, it talks about what happened with Kristen. It talks about the journey our family has been on, but the whole idea is to kind of get people to get through that, follow the story, and then slide right into, like you said, the warning signs to understand what abusers mm-hmm. do, to have a sense of how to break away from a, an unhealthy relationship and get out safely. Because, you know, you feel so bad for those who take a long time to finally say, you know what, I can't do this relationship anymore. And they go to get out, but they don't know about the get out part. And then they get hurt or they get killed anyway. And that's just so bad. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing your family's story with us. And we know that awareness and education are the surest means to taking on the dating violence issue. And although we can't really undo what has happened, we can help to prevent similar tragedies. And you know that as well as I do. And, you know, our tragedy was June of 05. Yours was September of 05. So we've been at it at the same amount of time. And you know, it's uh, misery does love company. I'll have to admit, and you make great company. And it is a club that no one wants to join, isn't it? It sure is. It, sure it is. is. 
But thank you for the opportunity, Bill. I, I appreciate everything that you're doing as well regarding education and, and that very educational book that you just wrote, When Dating Hurts. Thank you very much. And you know, my best to you and your family. And I hope to see you again soon. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.